Let's continue now with God's word to us today from the second chapter of Matthew. Listen now for God's word. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem asking, Where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? For we observed his star in the east and have gone to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened, and all Jerusalem with him. And calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it had been written by the prophets. Then Herod secretly secretly called for the Magi and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. And then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word so that I may also go and pay him homage. When they had heard the king, they set out, and there ahead of them went the star that they had seen in the east, until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. And then, opening their treasure chests, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Loving God, we pray that you will uh, grant us the eyes to see and the ears to hear and the hearts and minds to understand your word and your world as best we can this day, this year, and in times ahead. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what I just read is the traditional scripture lesson for the Feast of the Epiphany. January 6th, so that's yesterday, the Feast of the Epiphany, which is sort of the the markation point for the end of the Christmas season and the start of a new season, the season of Epiphany. Um, You know, despite what a lot of people think, Christmas does not start the day after Halloween. (laughs) It actually starts on Christmas Day itself, and it runs for 12 days. That's why we sing that famous hymn, The Twelve Days of Christmas. So the 12 days of Christmas ended on January the 5th. Epiphany comes from the Greek word epiphanos, which means manifestation. These days we might say we had an epiphany if we had a sort of an aha moment of discovery, but Originally, an epiphanos referred specifically to the manifestation or the revelation of something or somebody divine. And that's what the wise men come, that's where the wise men come in, because they weren't kings, despite what we just sang in the hymn. They were Zoroastrian priests from Persia, or Magi, from which we get the word magician. Today, we might call them astrologers because their job was as priests to scan the skies and to look at the patterns of the stars in order to predict the future and to predict what the gods would be doing. And they see a star that signifies to them that a new king of the Jews has been born. And so they follow this star, these Gentile, non-Jewish 
priests, they follow this star all the way to Jerusalem and they meet King Herod, who's really only a king in name only. He's more or less a, uh, a lackey. <laughs> he's a figurehead. He's, he's just serving as the governor of the Roman province of Judea. And when he hears what the Magi say, he panics. He panics because he hears that there's a new king and he's the governor of a Roman province. And if there's a new king, that might cause some problems. So he recruits the Magi as spies. He tells them to go find this new king and then to return and give him a full report. So they head off to Bethlehem where they see the baby Jesus. They give him the gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. They pay him homage, as the prophet said. And then after a dream, they go home, it says, by another road in order to avoid old King Herod. And, you know, that's where we usually end the story of the nativity of Jesus. How many of you have three kings or wise men in your creche at home or out here in the in the narthex, that's kind of where we leave them, which isn't surprising because they disappear. We never hear anything more about them in anywhere in the gospel. But that is not where the story ends in the gospel of Matthew. So listen now for the rest of the story. Now, after they had left, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph, Jesus's father, in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And then Joseph got up, he took the child and his mother by night, went to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, Out of Egypt I have called my son. When Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he was infuriated. And he sent and he killed all the children in and around Bethlehem who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had learned from the Magi. When Herod died, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who were seeking the child's life are dead. And then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. You know, when people talk about the most obscure passages in Scripture, the ones that don't get read or preached about very much, this one is kind of at the top of the list. We call it the slaughter of the innocents, which leads to what we call the escape of Joseph and Mary and Jesus to Egypt. And it's no surprise at all that we tend to avoid it because it's chilling. We don't want to hear it, even though we just did. We heard about it in the Coventry Carol, which is all about mothers holding their babies and preparing for them to be taken and killed by King Herod. That's what that song was about. And it's, it's beautiful music but it clashes so much with our long-cherished images of Christmas. But there it is in the Bible. So what are we going to do about it? 
Well, first, remember that the Gospel of Matthew was written some 40 years after Easter, after the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus. Most likely it was addressed to an audience of Jewish converts to what later on became called Christianity. So these were Jews who were following Jesus. So it's full of ideas and images taken from the Old Testament. Chapter 2 alone, I basically just read most, almost all of chapter 2, there are at least 10 references to earlier events or prophecies that foretell how the Messiah is going to come. There's the star that symbolizes the birth of a king, which the prophet Micah had talked about. The place of Jesus' birth, I'm sorry, that was in the book of Numbers. Micah talked about that the place of Jesus' birth would be in Bethlehem, the city of David. Isaiah says that Gentiles, like the Magi, are going to come from the east to worship and pay homage to the Messiah in Judah. And in Jeremiah, there's a story or a prophecy about the massacre of children that is going to happen when the Messiah dies or is born. And then there's all these references to Moses. Did you catch them? All these references to Moses, who himself was born at a time when a king killed all the babies of the Jews in Egypt. And he was rescued by his sister named Miriam, which is Hebrew for Mary. And then he is, uh, grows up, he survives, he grows up, and then he leads his own people to salvation, to the promised land out of Egypt, just as the baby Jesus goes out of Egypt with his parents to lead all people to the kingdom of God. Now, whether this slaughter of the innocents actually happened, we don't know. It's only written about in Matthew's gospel. We don't hear about it in any other historical record. But even so, history is full of events just like it. And the Bible itself isn't shy at all about describing atrocities committed by tyrants. So disturbing as it is, we need to pay attention to it and not just try to tame it or over-sentimentalize the events surrounding Jesus' birth into a sort of a hallmark card. Because for the light of the gospel to shine fully, we need to be honest about the darkness in which it shines. And that's why I chose to preach on this difficult passage today. A lot of preachers try to avoid it. I'm not saying I'm special. I'm just saying I can't anymore, considering the world we live in today. Because right now, life is hard and uncertain and dangerous and dark for so many people, especially children. Maybe you heard that this year, most of the festivities that happen in Bethlehem on Christmas Eve to celebrate the birth of Jesus were canceled. Canceled. And it reminds me of what happened a few years ago during one of the intifadas, the uprisings, local Palestinian boys had been throwing, you know, a barrage of rocks and Molotov cocktails at Israeli troops in Bethlehem and the soldiers fired back and they killed a bunch of kids. 
And I'll always remember what a little four-year-old boy named Mohammed said when a reporter asked him what his experience was like. And the little boy said back, it was very noisy. You know, I think we've all would agree that 2023 has been a very noisy year. And as Steve mentioned in his sermon last week, there is a strong chance that 2024 will be pretty hard too. With a presidential election, continuing war in Ukraine and the Holy Land and so many other places, a global climate crisis and everything else that's going on, we live in a noisy world. So what can we do in this coming year to follow the star of God's light and love and healing and peace? Well, here are just a few things I think we can focus on in times ahead. Like some of you, I subscribe to a newsletter from an organization called the Center for uh, Contemplation and Action. It was founded by uh, Father Richard Rohr, who some of you've heard of. Anyway, the theme of the newsletter for 2024 is Radical Resilience. It's the title of my sermon, too. (laughs) Copped it. Radical resilience. Radical resilience means going back, being radical, going back to the roots of who we are as a people of God in order to live into the promise of light and love that we see manifest or revealed in Christ. And it starts with prayer, centering ourselves in the presence of God and presence of the Spirit however we can, by ourselves or with other people, Now, prayer can take many forms, and if you're going to go to the women's retreat this week, I think you're going to discover some of those forms. It could be silent contemplation, it could be reflecting on scripture, it could be walking in nature, it could be praying with words, but whatever it is, the point is to practice, to pay attention consistently to the wellspring of love and healing and hope and mercy at the core of the Spirit who dwells within us as members of the body of Christ, as Christians, as human beings. To pay attention consistently. And then we can act to spread those gifts into a hurting world where so many forces are trying to rip us apart, set us against each other. So in that sense, radical resilience isn't a program nothing specific. It's more like a stance we can take. It's a capacity we can build to get through hard times, to catch our breath, and to keep our bearings in stormy seas. You know, it reminds me of what I pretty much always notice when I go down to the Monterey Bay Aquarium. And of all things, it's the kelp beds. The kelp beds, they're easy to miss, right? Because most of our attention is drawn to the fish that are swimming in and around the the kelp. But kelp itself is really pretty interesting. I'm no oceanographer, but I read that it isn't either a plant or an animal. It's a stamenophile, similar to the algae you see growing on rocks and trees. 
and it can grow as much as a foot and a half a day and as high as 250 feet to get to the, to the waves on top of the ocean. But when you look at it anywhere in the middle, you know, in the aquarium, you're looking at it, it looks so fragile. It looks like, why doesn't it just break apart and float away all the time? And you know, some of it does. A lot of it gets harvested or eaten. But surprisingly, kelp is a resilient survivor. And it is so because of two things. First of all, each organism in the kelp forest is attached to the ocean floor by what's called a hold fast. A hold fast. It's a strong and hard root that no matter how intense the currents are, keeps the kelp rooted in place. But if the entire organism was just as hard and rigid as the hold fast, it'd easily break apart. And so, that's why the rest of the kelp's structure is so supple. It allows it to float. It allows it to move with the rising and the falling of the seas without losing itself. And that's what the call to radical resilience is, too. As followers of Jesus, we can be deeply rooted in the spirit of love so that we can move and act graciously in the midst of rough times. And that leads me to another practice for this new year. And that is not to be rigid, not to be rigid, to, to get stuck in either or thinking, either you're one of us or one of them, either you're good or you're bad and all the rest. I mean, the Bible says that one of the great <coughs> Christian virtues is humility. In Philippians 2, Paul writes, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, putting your brother's and sister's interests ahead of your own. That means in part to be open to hearing what other people have to say. They might be wrong. You might be wrong too. But be humble and open-hearted. And sometimes, maybe even a lot of the time, and I need to learn this for myself, it's good to just pause a moment to breathe before you react. You know, I heard a podcast the other day with the scholar Heather Cox Richardson, and she said this, in times of conflict over politics or anything else, take a deep breath. Because bad actors want your attention quickly. And they want you to make quick decisions. But of course, quick decisions in politics, as in lots of other realms in life, are often bad decisions. There's a lot of wisdom in that, a lot of truth in that. And it brings me to one last practice we can try this new year. And that is simply to treat one another as human beings, as God's beloved children. You know, among the other distressing results of the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, and there are so many distressing things, 
One of the most distressing to me is how immediately so many people just sort of jumped into defending their preconceived ideas or prejudices, whether from ideology or whatever it is, experience. And you know, I understand it. It's, it's human to do that. We go to what's familiar. But it can also dehumanize and diminish the voices and the suffering of others. And as Paul writes, when any of us suffer, we all suffer together. The other day I came across a quote from Valerie Cower, who's a Sikh American uh, human rights activist. I posted it on my Facebook too, if you want to look at it. Um, it fits so well, too, whether you're whatever religion you are, but it fits so well with how we as Christians are called to act and react with love for all people in the face of tragedy and trauma. And I'm going to read it in full. She writes, or she says, Our most powerful response to the violence in Israel and Palestine is to refuse to surrender our humanity. You will be told by some that the deaths of Israeli children are unfortunate but inevitable because Israel's occupation of Palestine is brutal and wrong. You will be told by others that the deaths of Palestinian children are unfortunate but inevitable because it is the only way to keep Israel safe from terror and Hamas brought this on its own people. You will hear our aggression is the only response to their aggression. Our fear more justified than their fear. Our grief more devastating than theirs will ever be. And she goes on. But the hierarchy of pain is the old way. The moment we allow our hearts to go numb to the deaths of any children is the moment we shut down our humanity. I don't know the solution to the conflict in Israel and Palestine, but I do know the starting point for any solution is to grieve their children as our children. To grieve their children as our children. It is the only way to break the cycle. To ask, what does love want you to do? End quote. And you know, that's a question we can all ask ourselves in almost any context. What does love want me to do right here, right now? So as we come to the communion table, or as it was often called in the early church, the feast of love, as we come to be fed ourselves, let's prepare ourselves to feed and love each other and one another and other people in this season of Epiphany, in this new year, as we seek to follow the morning star of God's grace. In Jesus' name, amen.